You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We turn now in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 1. When you found your place, let's pray together. Our Father, you are good to, to us to give us your word. It is the word of truth. It is the word that is filled with your wisdom. And we are grateful that you have opened our eyes to it. And it is our desire that we may understand your word this morning. Help us to think clearly about these things and to, and to appreciate what you have given to us. Would you pray that you would grant to us understanding and that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, our comforter, and our encourager in this passage. May you be glorified through our study and our time here, we pray earnestly in Christ's name. Amen. We're picking up where we left off from Ecclesiastes chapter 1 with verse 16, and we're kind of dropping into the middle of a passage, so we need something of a of introduction to remind you of where we are at and what we have been looking at in the last couple of weeks, particularly in connection with last week, since we started with verse 12 last week, which is a new literary unit. And so there is uh, uh, something new that we're starting here that's kind of tied in with the overall theme of Ecclesiastes. Uh, verse 12 begins, uh, well, I should back up to verse 3. Verse 3 of chapter 1 really asks a question that Solomon is, is endeavoring to answer all the way through the end of chapter 2, and that is, what profit or advantage is there for a man in all of his labor that he does under the sun? And Solomon looked at nature and found that nothing has changed. He looked at humanity and found that nothing is satisfied and nothing is new. And he looked at history and realized that nothing will ever be remembered. And so he kind of despaired of that. In the beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, he begins a biographical section where he describes his own pursuit of meaning in all of these endeavors and chapter 2 really gets into, and then we'll look at this next week, really gets into more all of the different endeavors that he pursued in trying to answer this question, what is the profit or advantage for all of my work and all of my labor? And Solomon set his heart and he set his mind to this. And chapter 1 ends with two little uh, very similar sections, verses 12 to 15 and verse 16 to 18. And those two sections both follow a pattern. And the pattern is the same in both of them. Solomon begins with a biographical statement in verse 12 and in verse 16 where he describes something about himself that uniquely suited him or qualified him for a certain study or a pursuit of knowledge. And then he describes the pursuit of knowledge, the area of his study. And then Solomon describes to us the results of that study, striving after wind and vanity, of course. And then he captures the essence of that in a proverb that you see in verse 15 and verse 18. So a biographical statement the scope of his investigation, the results of it, and then a proverb that kind of captures his frustration with it. And we looked at verses 12 to 15 last week where Solomon, after examining nature and humanity and history, he turned his attention to the works themselves that were done under the sun. And using human wisdom and human wisdom alone, human rationality, Solomon examined all that is done under the sun, searching for some sliver or corner of human existence or endeavor that might have some nugget of meaning or significance in it that might allow him to say that it's not all vanity after all. It's not After all, it's not all meaningless. Here is the nugget of meaning in life in some human endeavor or some human work. But Solomon ended up frustrated with that because he found, as he, as he captures these, the, the saying in verse 15, that what is lacking cannot be counted and what is crooked cannot be straightened. So he found that life in this world is bent, it's, it's crooked, and that cannot be fixed. And not only that, but we don't even know what we don't know. 
And the more that we learn, the more we realize that there are areas of life that we just cannot even assess or measure, and, and we don't even know where the gaps in our knowledge are. You can't measure it. You can't, you can't come to grips with it. Everything under the sun is broken. And that's frustrating. And human wisdom can observe that, but human wisdom cannot answer it. Human wisdom offers me no solution to any of the bentness or the brokenness that I see under the sun. And if you turn to divine wisdom, you find that even divine wisdom fails at straightening out what is bent because divine wisdom is not intended to do that. Even the wisest man on the planet still has to live in a broken world where things are busted. And they don't work. Even the wisest man has to live in a broken and fallen and cursed creation, finding that this curse saps everything that we do of its of its lasting value, and the curse that we live under ends up burying all of us under the sands of time in a state of forgottenness and, and meaninglessness. That's, the divine wisdom helps us to live in that fallenness to the, for the good of our neighbor and for the glory of God, but divine wisdom doesn't straighten out the brokenness. It doesn't reverse the fall or cancel out the effects of the fall. So we still have to live in it, and divine wisdom helps me to navigate this fallen world in a way that will bring glory to God, maximum glory. So that brings us to the end of verse 15. Now we pick it up at verse 16, where Solomon turns his attention now to wisdom itself. Having examined all the works that are done under the sun, with wisdom as his vantage point, now Solomon found that frustrating. So now, now the next question is, if wisdom can't help me to find meaning in life, then what is the benefit or purpose of wisdom, right? Now Solomon backs up a step and says, let's examine wisdom itself. And so that's what he does in verses 16 to 18. So let's read that paragraph together. And you'll notice again this outline that we're going to be following, a biographical statement, uh, a field of study or search that he looks into, the results of it, and then a proverb. The biographical statement of verse 16, I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. 17 is the scope of his study. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Here's the results. I realize that it's also a striving after wind. And here's the proverb. Because in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. So let's begin with the biographical statement that Solomon gives. He says in verse 16, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. This is something that Solomon could say. And if Solomon is renowned for anything, it is the amount of wisdom and knowledge that he had. And Scripture remarks on that a number of times. I won't read you all of them, but we did. I did in the introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes, we kind of went through 1 Kings and 1 Chronicles and looked at, or 2 Chronicles, and looked at some of the statements that were made regarding Solomon and his wisdom. In 1 Kings 3, this is what we read. God says to Solomon, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. I've also given you what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that there will not be any among the kings like you all your days. And that was indeed the case with Solomon. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, wrote 1,005 songs. He was a man who was renowned for his wisdom. He spoke of birds and and trees and, and botany and animals and creeping things. And people from all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. He was truly an intellectual genius. And I think that you and I standing in his presence and having a conversation with him would be somewhat awed at his intellectual ability and the wisdom with which he spoke. This is early on in his reign, of course. And sometimes it's difficult for us to think in those terms that somebody who lived prior to us could be smarter than we are. You ever have a trouble thinking that? Right? They lived back then. How could Solomon be so smart? He didn't have smartphones. Solomon didn't understand the, the mechanics of flight like we do today. He didn't have the internet. He never studied computer science. 
How can he be, how can he be smarter than we are? This is what C.S. Lewis refers to as chronological snobbery. The idea that we, we think that we who live today have so much more wisdom and so much more knowledge than those who came before us. If you're ever tempted to fall into that trap of thinking that you're smaller, smarter than people who lived in previous generations, then I give you this challenge. Go back and read the, just the casual correspondence of men and women who lived in the 16, 17, and 1800s. Not their philosophical ponderings, not their theological ramblings, just their casual correspondence. The, the letters that were written from husbands to their wives, for instance. You think you're so smart? Just try and go figure out one of those letters. It is like reading another language because they weren't much smarter than we are. I dare to say that I don't think that there is a person graduating from college in this country today that holds a candle to one of the founding fathers of this nation in their intellectual capacity and their understanding of human nature and how things actually work and what is actual true and real. I don't think it happens. So it is. I, I don't have any problem saying that Solomon was probably smarter and wiser than anyone in this room. And I think we would have been stunned at his intellectual capacity. So that is his statement. Now, there, there's something that Solomon says here that is somewhat confusing to commentators and Bible scholars. And I want you to be aware of it. He says in verse 16, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. And it seems as if Solomon is comparing himself to all of the kings who ruled before him. Now, here's the quandary. How many people ruled before Solomon over Jerusalem? One. Someone said two. Now, Saul was king before David was king, but Saul didn't reign from Jerusalem. Only David did. So it sounds as if Solomon is comparing himself to one person, doesn't it? I was smarter than everybody who ruled Jerusalem before me. Well, how many was that, Solomon? Just one guy. This is like the homeschooler who says, I was the valedictorian of my class. I'm the smartest person that I graduated with, right? When you, when you realize the field against which he is comparing himself, it almost seems like a silly statement. And, and the fact that Solomon is describing here those who ruled Jerusalem before him in the plural, when we understand there was only one, if indeed this is Solomon, has led some commentators to doubt the Solomonic authorship of the book of Ecclesiastes. And I use the term Solomonic just because it sounds smart. And I have to have something that I say today sound smart. But it leads some people to doubt whether Solomon was really the author of this because they say that is an evidence that the person writing the book was somebody who lived much later than Solomon, one of the descendants of David years and generations down the line. And that he is writing then describing himself. The problem with that is that all of the other biographical statements in this book match Solomon and Solomon alone. Like in verse 12, where he says I, he ruled over Jerusalem, uh, he ruled all of Israel over Jerusalem. We saw last week there was only one king who ruled over the entire nation from the city of Jerusalem, who was also a son of David, and that was Solomon. So if you deny Solomon as the author of Ecclesiastes, it ends up raising far more questions than it answers. So then the dilemma for us is, how do we understand Solomon's statement here in a way that doesn't make it sound as if he is either comparing himself to just one other individual or being intellectually dishonest or that this is somebody who lived much later than Solomon? What, how do we, what do we make of his statement? There are a couple of different ways of, of understanding what Solomon says. The first is, it may be by that by saying those who ruled over Jerusalem before me, that Solomon is not just referring to David, but all of the regents and the princes under David who had anything to do in his administration and ruled in Jerusalem. So it would be, you know, David's cabinet, his advisors, his generals, people that he put over various various positions in the government. And if that is what Solomon means, then that is not just one individual. That could be a lot of people who were ruling and exercising power in Jerusalem before Solomon. That's one way of understanding it. It's also possible that by Jerusalem, Solomon is not specifically referring just to the city in a literal sense, but using Jerusalem sort of as a, 
as a metaphor for the seat of power. In order, in other words, what Solomon is saying, I'm smarter than all who ruled over this nation at any time in its past. Jerusalem then not being specifically the city, but more of a sort of an allusion to just the rulership or the kingship of the nation in any sense. If that's the case, then Solomon, of course, is comparing himself not just to David, but Saul and to all of the judges who preceded Saul, as well as Moses and Joshua. Now, that's quite a company of people. So that might be what Solomon is saying. And either one of those is possible. There is a third option, and it has to do with the preposition over. And some have suggested that it ought to be translated or can also mean in. And this is how the King James and the New King James translates it. The New King James and the King James translates it. I was an increase in wisdom and knowledge more than all who were in Jerusalem before me. Meaning all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, that's an even larger number of people, I was smarter than all of them. Any one of those possibilities does, doesn't do violence to the context or to the meaning of the text, and it could be understood any one of those three ways. But I just wanted you to be aware that that's kind of one of those things that people look to and say, say Solomon was not the author after all. That, or he's really comparing himself to a very small group of people. Okay, so that's the perplexing part of the statement. Now, I want you to notice that it does sound like something of an arrogant statement, doesn't it? I was smarter than everybody else. That's one thing if somebody says that about you. It's another thing if you say that about yourself, right? It sounds kind of arrogant and condescending. But keep in mind that Solomon is saying something here that is true, and his point is not to be braggadocious with this statement. The point that Solomon is arriving at is this. He is laying out his credentials for the study because he says in verse 17, so I set my mind to study wisdom and madness and folly. Well, if somebody is going to study wisdom and madness and folly, we would think that he would have to be somebody with the intellectual capacity and the state of mind to have wisdom and knowledge in such a capacity, in such a way as to be able to assess those things. You don't want a fool who has set himself to study knowledge and wisdom. You don't want somebody who's a complete ignoramus who searches knowledge to find out that there's no meaning in it because you would quickly discredit somebody's testimony. But if you have somebody who is truly an intellectual genius, truly a philosophical mind, truly somebody with a lot of wisdom and a love for wisdom, and he pursues wisdom and knowledge and, and madness to find out if there is any meaning in those things, then suddenly we have a qualified individual in our hands. And that's what Solomon is doing. He's laying out his, his credentials. I have wisdom and knowledge, and it was more than anybody else before me. Just a matter of fact, this was the gift of God to Solomon. He had that wisdom. He had that knowledge and that understanding. And from that vantage point, he sets his heart to study and to examine these things. So now look at his quest in verse 17. His quest, verse 17, And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. And he says, I set my mind, just like he does up in verse 13, describing his previous investigation into the works that are done under the sun. And again, that tells us that for Solomon, this was not, this was not a casual pursuit. This was not a hobby. Uh, this pursuit of, of meaning and significance in wisdom and madness and folly, it was something that Solomon fixed his heart and his mind and his focused attention on. Because if I cannot understand the works that are done from the vantage point of wisdom, then backing up one step, what then is the point of wisdom? Maybe wisdom itself, knowledge itself, provides me some key to the meaning of life. And so he set his mind to examine wisdom and madness and folly, and there are three things there. First, let's take each one of them individually. Wisdom is the same word that is used up in verse 13 when he says he examined all the works that were done under the sun using wisdom as his guide, with using wisdom as his rule. It's the same word for wisdom. In verse 13, I said, suggested last week, I don't think that what is being described as divine wisdom. In other words, Solomon is not plumbing the depths of divine wisdom and saying it has fallen short. Solomon instead is using human wisdom, rationality, and reason to examine the works that are done under the sun and observing that human wisdom offers us no solutions to the questions and gives us no answer to what is the meaning of life. 
And so then Solomon backs up now and he's going to examine wisdom itself. And I think that it is the same kind of wisdom that he is examining. He's examining wisdom from the perspective of under the sun. In other words, it is wisdom divorced from God as any reality or determining factor in any of my examination. If what Solomon is referring to here is divine wisdom, then Solomon, if that's what he's referring to, then Solomon is describing divine wisdom divorced from the giver of that wisdom. So then the question would be this. Take somebody who has been given a load of divine wisdom, which he has communicated to us in the book of Proverbs. You take somebody who has been given all of that wisdom and then ask them to use that wisdom under the sun without any reference to God or his or, or, or God's say in what happens in life. And what do you make of that wisdom? And it comes up short again. So this is wisdom without the wise one involved in it at all. That's Solomon's quest. That's what he's, that's what he set his mind to examine. He's examining wisdom to ask this question, does wisdom provide me, wisdom without God's perspective, does wisdom and knowledge provide me with an answer to what is the meaning? Is there any significance? And he examined, of course, if you're going to examine wisdom, then you have to examine the opposite of that, which is madness and folly. And just as wisdom and knowledge are very close synonyms in wisdom literature and scripture, so is the word madness and folly. The word folly is the polar opposite of wisdom. So if you want to know what a fool looks like, you read through the book of Proverbs and everything that it commends is wise behavior. Think in terms of the exact opposite of that. And then think in terms of how the Proverbs describe the fool. That is what is being described here. He is examining not just wisdom, but also Solomon is going to set his mind to know madness and folly. Now the word madness um, is sometimes translated insanity. And it is a word that describes somebody who is uh, somewhat delusional. According to the theological word book of the Old Testament, it describes the the irrationality of insanity and not the behavior of insanity. In other words, it describes the mindset and not necessarily the things that are done. So this is not the insanity, for instance, of a Nebuchadnezzar who wanders around in the field on his hands and knees eating grass, being drenched by the dew from heaven. It's not that type of insanity. It's not the behavior, the actions of somebody who wants to throw themselves into a fire or kill themselves. We would call that insane behavior. This describes the thinking or the irrationality. It describes a mindset and a way of thinking where these two things do not match up. You're saying this and you're saying this, and they miss each other. These don't connect. This is irrational. This is unreasonable. This doesn't make any sense. Let me give you an example. Yesterday's news. You look out at what's going on in our world and our culture and say to yourself, this doesn't make any sense. These people have lost their minds. We're living in an insane asylum and the inmates are in charge. Everybody is going nuts. This is like Arkham Asylum, everything that is happening. Congress is like Arkham Asylum every day. It is irrational. This doesn't make any sense. You mean just because a man says he feels like a woman, that Shazam, his DNA has changed? And now he plays in the women's softball league and competes on women's sports teams? And he gets to go in and use a women's restroom next to my daughters or my wife or your granddaughters and that we're all supposed to pretend that this fiction is reality? This doesn't make any sense. For 6,000 years we have known which parts go where. We have known uh, which bathrooms we are supposed to use. We have known what is proper and modest and right. And now we're being told that everything that we have known, that up was up and down was down, that all of that is backwards that doesn't make any sense. There's no such thing as up and up and down and down. These things don't make any sense in our world because we make it up as we go along. 
And those of us who are not afflicted by that mental illness and by that irrationality, look at that and say, that's irrational. That is madness. That's the mindset that Solomon is describing here. He is going to set his mind to know wisdom and folly and, of course, madness. Now, what did this look like when Solomon investigated madness, the insanity and the irrationality? Some people suggest that what Solomon did is he examined madness or studied madness clinically as if from a distance, much like I would, much like I would study Darwinism, not because I'm adopted Darwinian thinking, but because I want to know how Darwinists think. I want to know what their reasons are, what their arguments are, what they think about something. I want to know what the latest headlines say, so I study that. Or I study postmodernism, not because I want to be a postmodernist, but because I want to understand how a postmodern world thinks. I want to understand what hedonists believe and what uh, what nihilists believes and existentialists believe, so I understand these philosophies from a distance, clinically, not because I am imbibing these philosophies, but because I want to understand them, so I study them from a distance. Some people say that that's how Solomon knew madness. Some people say that Solomon knew madness because he dove headlong right into madness. Now, what does the, what does the record of Scripture suggest regarding Solomon's study of madness? Well, he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's 999 madnesses. When he only needed one madness. <laughs> no. He dove headlong into every pleasure that he could seek satisfying every desire that he had, living for today, and we're going to study in, ch- in chapter 2, there was, no- there was nothing in terms of wine, women, wealth, or song that Solomon withheld from himself. He sought, he sought pleasure and fulfillment in all of those things, in all of those wives, and even got to the point where his wives turned his heart away from God, and Solomon built temples to the gods of his various foreign wives. That is madness and insult- insanity. That is Solomon turning his back entirely on truth and saying, is there then any meaning in insanity? So what does this look like in our world? How do, how do, how do you describe this in our world? What, what does Solomon's quest look like? I don't think that this is as difficult for us to answer as, as you might think at first because I believe that our entire nation, our culture, and our entire world really is pursuing the exact same path that Solomon pursued. Let me lay out the path for you. We used to believe in objective morality, objective reality, and objective truth. Then along comes science, falsely so-called, and tells us that we are nothing but blobs of glue, uh, a goo moving around on a rock, floating and flying through space. And that therefore there is no significance, no meaning, no purpose to any of it. And as gobs of glue, goo, you cannot even be sure that you really know anything. Because once you remove God from the picture and say there is no God, it's all time, chance, and natural processes, once you remove God from that picture, then there really is no significance or meaning or purpose that can be that can be milked from our existence. It just doesn't exist. And so now that these objective things that we thought were objective, when God was in the picture, we take God out of the picture and find out there is no reality and meaning and significance in any of these objective things. And then with God out of the picture, I'm not even sure that there is anything objective. And so now we're told, you don't even really know anything for sure. It's all a quest for meaning. And what you think is true today might be not true tomorrow. Ten years ago, we all knew what bathroom to use. Today, we all make this up. Why? Because nothing is objectively true. And so we all make this up as we as we go along. And now we are on a quest to find out, since we now have taken God out of the picture, and we can't be certain that anything is really known for sure, other than the fact that, of course, we know for sure that what? We don't know anything for sure. That's the contradiction of our modern day. You don't really know anything for sure, except that, that you don't know anything for sure. 
So meaning and purpose cannot be found in anything objective. So where do we turn to? We take God out of it. Reality, morality, and truth are not fixed things that we all must live in. Reality then becomes whatever we make it. So if I can't find meaning and purpose and significance in what is objectively true, because we can't understand anything that is objectively true anymore, then the only place I can turn is to how I feel, how I think, what I desire, what I want, and I start to live for today. That is where our culture is headed. Those of us on the outside who believe in objective truth and reality, look at that and we say that's madness. To search for meaning and significance only in your heart and to think that that is the rule of the universe, we think that that's insanity. But those who are over there on that quest say, no, this is my, this is my quest for true significance. See, I have found true significance now. Let me give you an example, and I don't, I'm not using this to pick on this individual, but I think it is a perfect example of, of what we're talking about and the path that Solomon is taking. Bruce Jenner could not be satisfied with the mark that he made on a generation, a generation ago. There was no meaning or significance to be found in making a mark on his generation. Why? Because a generation comes and a generation goes, right? The earth remains forever. And pretty soon you find out that Bruce Jenner's fame and popularity and his picture on the Wheaties box is replaced by Mary Lou Retton. And her picture is eventually replaced by Michael Phelps. So Michael Phelps is to this generation what Bruce Jenner was to my generation. Now my kids, none of my kids even knew before Bruce Jenner hit the headlines that he was a former Olympian. The only Bruce Jenner that my children have ever known is a guy who likes to wear dresses and high heels and who appeared on the cover of Vanity Fair magazine and was called Woman of the Year. Apparently proving that even men make better women than women. That's the message that is there, right? Even a man is a better woman than woman. He's the woman of the year. So that's what Bruce Jenner pursues. Why? Because there is no meaning or significance to be found in those medals because the sands of time will bury the medals after a while. And he's forgotten. People are talking about Michael Phelps. People are talking about other Olympians, but not Bruce Jenner anymore. And so having pursued significance in that way and found out that these objective measures of significance and achievement, they vanish. They go with the generations they go. I achieve the medals and then I am forgotten almost as quickly as he stepped onto the stage of significance. He stepped off the stage of significance and people remembered him no more. He wasn't on our Wheaties boxes after a couple of years. He made his splash and then he's gone. And we forget about him until he marries a celebrity and begins pursuing celebrity status. Why? Because the thinking is that I can find my meaning and significance in that way, in the approval of men and everybody else, only to find out that celebrity status is like a Wheaties box. It comes and it goes, and it vanishes just as quickly. So if I can't find it in objective truth, and I can't find it in objective reality and objective things that measure me for who I am, then I will turn to how I feel and try and find it in something that I am not. In other words... If I cannot find significance in reality, I will try and find significance in a fiction, in a fantasy. That is his quest. That is, in a nutshell, our entire culture. We have jettisoned objective morality and objective truth, and instead we have begun to pursue a fantasy and a fiction. Because when sanity does not satisfy or answer your questions, you will pursue insanity. When reality can offer you no meaning to the question, what is it all about, you will pursue a fiction or a fantasy in quest of the answer to that question, what is it all about? If wisdom can offer you no answers to that, then you'll pursue folly. 
That, that is what our culture is doing. We've abandoned all of this, and so now we have turned inside, and we are melting down around us in our own thinking because of what's going on. This is the path that Solomon took. It's the exact same path that everybody takes. Once you remove God from the picture, this is the path that's laid out for you. It is inevitable. Now, not everybody is going to declare their gender the opposite when they uh, when they fail to find meaning and significance, but they will pursue other ways of finding meaning and significance in fantasies and in folly and in a life that has lived according to their own standards. Standards, Because that's what Solomon did, and that is what everybody must do once they take God out of that picture. All right, so that is his quest. Now, what is the result of his quest? We know what it looked like. What is the results? It's in verse 17. I realize that this also is striving after wind. Just as trying to examine life under the sun from the vantage point of human wisdom is striving after wind and vanity, so is trying to understand wisdom and living a life of madness and folly. Trying to seek purpose and meaning out of wisdom failed him. Using wisdom failed him. So then he examined wisdom itself and found that it was empty when removed from God. And so the whole quest of pursuing then folly and madness and all that goes with it, it's all vanity, it's all striving after the wind. Because again, God now is entirely out of the picture. You can't bring that into the picture at all. And so Solomon is like a blind man walking around in the dark, feeling for meaning and purpose, and he can find nothing in any of the endeavors that he does because he is unwilling to open his eyes or have his eyes opened and have the light of truth shined into his situation. And since he is unwilling to do that, he is bereft of any kind of meaning or significance in life. And he can't answer this question, why? So that's the results of it. Now look at the proverb that he gives in verse 18. Because in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Now keep in mind that Ecclesiastes is what we call wisdom literature. That is, that it, it, is, a, a, it is the literature in Scripture that promotes or um, advances wisdom to us. It, it, it commends wisdom to us. But this doesn't sound like what you typically read in wisdom literature, does it? Increasing in much wisdom there is much grief and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. That's a pretty, mis- pretty pessimistic outlook. You notice how different that is from what we read at the beginning of our service in Proverbs chapter 3? Pursue wisdom like gold and silver, like fine jewels. It is better than anything else. There is nothing that you desire on earth that is equal to wisdom. That's what Solomon wrote in, Ecclesi- uh, in Proverbs. It's also different than what Solomon says even in the book of Ecclesiastes. It doesn't seem to compute. This is one of those places where you read him say something one place and another thing another place. Look at chapter 2, verse 26, which is the the end of this literary section. Chapter 2, verse 26. For to a person who is good in his sight, this is God, for to a person who is good in God's sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner, he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to the one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after wind. So what is? how does Solomon portray wisdom in verse 26? As the gift of God that God gives to the one who is good in his sight. The one who pleases God, God gives him wisdom and knowledge. That's a good thing. But except in verse 18 of chapter 1, much knowledge, much wisdom, there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. So which is it, Solomon? Am I supposed to pursue wisdom, knowing that bringing more wisdom brings me more grief, knowing more things causes me more pain, or am I supposed to view wisdom and knowledge as itself the gift of God? And here's the short answer to it. Wisdom and knowledge, when viewed and received as the gift of God and used under the purview of God's oversight and God's word, and and I use that wisdom and knowledge for the glory of God living my life in accordance with that, that is in itself a blessing from God. But if I take wisdom and knowledge and I pursue that apart from God, it brings me what? Much grief and increasing pain. That's the results of his study into wisdom. I pursued wisdom, 
ignoring God, increasing grief, and increasing pain. And there's no good thing that would come from that. Now, why why is it, in what way is knowledge increase our pain? Let me give you some ways in which knowledge pursued can increase our pain. First of all, knowledge brings an increase in an awareness of our ignorance. And this goes back to verse 15. What is lacking cannot be counted. The more we know, the more we realize that we don't know. And the more we know, the more we understand how there are gaps in our knowledge and there are questions that we need to answer. And we may discover something only to find out that the discovery of this, to answer this one question, raises a hundred other questions that now we have to research and discover. And that can become a very vexing pursuit when you realize that when I increase my knowledge, all I do is increase my awareness of my own ignorance. So that becomes painful. Second, knowledge does not satisfy the aching heart. Just as the eye is not uh, filled with seeing and the ear is not filled with hearing, so the brain is not filled with knowing. I find that every time I read a book about a subject that interests me, I get to the end of the book and guess what? It has only tantalized me to learn more about that subject. And so then I want to read another book about that subject. I can't read enough books. I don't have time to read enough books to satisfy my curiosity about World War II and the Cold War and the Reagan, Life and Times of Ronald Reagan. I can never be satisfied reading that. And the more books I read on that subject, the more I want to read on that subject. But I don't have time to do that. And, and so that vexes me. That frustrates me. And, and I would like to pursue reading in economics and, and history and theology and philosophy and all kinds of things. But I don't have the time to do that. And the more I the more I pursue any area that I have an interest in, the more I realize I don't know about that and the more I want to learn about that. And so that's just oh, that's painful. I hate it. And all these books that sit on my shelves that I can't read and I haven't read, they sit there and the spines of them mock me from afar. In my office and in my house, they mock me. You want to read me, but you can't read me because you don't have time to read me. And even if you read me, you're just going to read want to read more like me. And that's frustrating. So it can't satisfy our hearts because our hearts are never filled with knowing true knowledge. There becomes an, an insatiable hunger to know more. And even if I live a hundred years or a thousand years, I will never be able to be proficient in all of the things that in, intrigue me and interest me. Third, knowledge cannot provide answers to the quest for meaning. You can know everything, there is to know on the face of this planet about everything there is on the face of this planet and everything that has happened, and you will never be able to answer the question, why? Why do we exist? Why are we here? Why is there something rather than nothing? I can learn everything about science, everything about history, everything about philosophy, and it cannot answer that question, why? It cannot tell me why anything at all is meaningful. It cannot. So knowledge only knowledge never answers that question or satisfies that question. We can discover the atom, and and we are we are no more we're no closer to answering the question of why anything exists or is there any meaning having discovered the atom than we were when we thought that all things were made up of earth, wind, fire, and water. Having landed on the surface of the moon and studied its gravity and its rocks and its dust, we are no closer to understanding the meaning of life because of that than we were when we thought the moon was made out of cheese, if people ever thought the moon was made out of cheese. Uh, having, having discovered every scientific discovery that we, that we gain doesn't answer that question. And so there's this aching, nagging sense that we are not having our questions answered. And this is, the, this is the state of modern science today. The guys in the white coats tell us, don't worry, we are really close to figuring out what the purpose and the meaning of life is. And so we break our backs, patting our, our arms, patting ourselves on the backs, and we publish all of our articles in our fancy scientific journals, and they're all peer-reviewed, and we get together, and we hand everybody awards, and we all talk about how great we are, how great our discipline is, and, and we don't want to give any room or thought to God, but even though we're telling you that it's all purposeless and it's all meaningless, eventually we are going to find the, the atom or the particle or the substance or the mystery or the formula or whatever it is that will be able to answer that question, what is the meaning of life? And guess what? 
Eventually, you can't do it. And eventually, people give up the pursuit in frustration and despair. All the while, they're telling us that we can, through our knowledge, answer these questions. And we cannot, through knowledge, answer the questions. Because knowledge is unable to answer that question, why? Why is the moon even there? We can go to the moon, but we cannot answer why it is there. Just by going to the moon, even. And fourth, knowledge makes me aware of how crooked things in this life really are. And this goes back to verse 15 as well. What is crooked cannot be straightened. And the more I know, the more I realize that this is a fallen creation. And the more I know about things, the more it brings us back to the fact that we live in a broken creation that is under the curse of God. Everything we discover, every human endeavor, every human work and activity only pierces us deeper with the thorns and the thistles of the fall. And we cannot escape that. And all knowledge does is, is bring us to that awareness that no matter what we pursue, we run into stuff that is broken that cannot be answered. That's what knowledge does. And so the more I increase in knowledge and understand about the world, the more vexed I am because of the fallenness of this world. And so the answer to that fallenness is not in anything that we research or understand by way of knowledge or wisdom in this world, and that is why it comes up short. That is why Solomon said, in much wisdom there is much grief, and increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Pursuing wisdom without God gives me no answers. So what do we do then? Do we just give up the pursuit of wisdom? Do we just abandon it all and say, well, then I'll be happy with my ignorance and my stupidity. I'll just try and be as ignorant and stupid and foolish as I possibly can. No, because in that, that's folly and vanity as well. So what do we then do? If you can't commend wisdom and you can't commend folly, you can't commend ignorance, you can't commend knowledge, what then do we do? What are my options? Matthew Henry in his commentary on Ecclesiastes has a couple of sentences that I think help strike a a confident and good balance between these two things. And I'm going to read to you what Matthew Henry wrote because he lived before us, so he was smarter than us. So his words are a bit difficult for us to understand because this is not a, this is not a tweet. So we can't understand it unless it's a tweet or it fits comfortably in a Facebook status. But here's what Matthew Henry wrote. Let us not, therefore, be driven off from the pursuit of any useful knowledge, but put on patience to break through the sorrow of it. But let us despair of finding true happiness in this knowledge and expect it only in the knowledge of God and the careful discharge of our duty to Him. Here's what Matthew Henry was saying. Let us not, having read this and come to this understanding, put off the pursuit of useful knowledge. We ought to do that. If we're going to pursue knowledge, we also have to pursue it with the patience that will allow us to break through the sorrow of it and realize that, yes, there is a cost to this knowledge and wisdom. Yes, there is a pain involved in it. But I have to be patient to understand that wisdom and knowledge for itself, in and of itself as a gift of God, is a good thing. But that's going to come with a certain degree of pain. And then Henry goes on to say this. Let us not despair of wisdom and knowledge itself, but let us despair of thinking that we can find our happiness in wisdom and knowledge. This was Solomon's mistake, that in wisdom and knowledge alone I can be happy. Whereas the biblical perspective is that wisdom is good if that wisdom leads me to obey God. The knowledge is good if it's a knowledge of who God is and what He wants for me to do. So I don't, I don't, I don't put my vexation upon wisdom and knowledge and despair of it. I despair of finding my happiness in it. And instead understand that my true happiness is found in knowing God, that's the knowledge part, and in the wisdom that results in obedience to His commands, and that's the wisdom part. So true happiness can be found, but not in wisdom itself, and not in knowledge itself, but rather in the knowledge of God and the wisdom of obeying Him. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, we are thankful for Your goodness to us in giving us the truth and helping us to understand these things from the perspective of, of Your divine revelation. We pray that You would help us to despair of ever thinking we can find our happiness in wisdom and knowledge alone, 
but rather to pursue you and knowing you and obeying you in every way. Help us to live a life of faith that lays hold of Christ and lays hold of your word and your truth and to live in this broken world in a way that pleases you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness and kindness. And may you go with us, your people, both now and forever, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.